Whoop, 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 whoop. Yeah, let's let's do a proper introduction thing again. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So when you're in, hello and welcome to Ted Zoo, the podcast. With me, are you recording? Of course, oh, I've been recording for a while. Wow! You can tell me with me, Darren Nash. Oh damn it! Damn it! I'm screwing it all up. <laughs> in this episode. I have to say, by the way, the last episode, we got a lot of really good feedback on that. And I think partly that the, the, not only did we cover some interesting stuff that people obviously enjoyed listening to, but also we, um, we kind of had like a clear, precise structure. We did one bit, moved on to the next bit, moved on to the next bit. So in this episode, we're going to talk about... Um, Hang on, no, we didn't. Last episode, we just <laughs> wandered all over the place as we normally oh, do. No, it was, all, it was all done to a precise plan mm. it was orchestrated and very mm. well organized yes right to, it's the 21st of january today which means that it's tetsu's eighth birthday so we're going to cover that briefly we're going to talk about recent stuff that we've been involved in working on i want to talk about the journal of zoology paper i just had come out about the, the, the fossil record of bird behavior um we are going to deal with Two, three. Cash, Cash for questions. questions. <laughs> Synchronized beautifully. Um, and I don't know, walking with dinosaurs, the 3D movie. You've got to talk about that because we've got covered dinosaur-related stuff. If we have time. I, um, um, I want to. I I was listening back to the the well the last couple of episodes. It, I discovered that did you know that. <laughs> Two episodes begin with me saying, "Wow, there's a new tape here that's just been found." Uh, with both times forgetting that, well, obviously the second time forgetting that I've spoken about it the previous time. So, so did you know there's a new tape here just been published? It's called Taperus Cabobardi. It's from Brazil. Blah 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 blah. Listen yeah. to previous two episodes where all that. Yeah, I think actually your best bit on that was in episode thirteen, but <laughs> it's gone yeah. now. Which we should release one day. Mm. So, um, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, and there's there's also there's loads of there's loads of errors that I always think that we should chase up, uh, but that we there's going to be a special part of the show dedicated to that, which we're going to call Cow and Keezy Corner, <laughs> where for example, oh, it was many 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 episodes ago we were talking about why why marine tetrapods seem to sometimes have a competitive edge against non-tetrapod vertebrates or fish as they're commonly known and the the general thinking was that this <laughs> what the hell we don't we don't have an answer but of course what we forgot was that um uh atmospheric oxygen is uh it's it's far more efficient to rely on atmospheric oxygen than it is on dissolved oxygen in water so if you're grabbing uh lungfuls of air at the surface you can still out compete fish because uh you are uh well more oxygenated blah 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 and herbivorous fish. Do you remember why? Why was I talking about herbivorous fish? Why was I talking about fish I at all? I don't know. I don't know why you're talking about them now. <laughs> I'm sure there was. You know something that would be really useful. Now you know how people do loads. You know how people do loads of favors for us just for free because they love us yeah. so much. What would be really useful would be 
full transcripts of all Tetsu <laughs> podcast episodes. So mm-hmm. if anyone would like to work on that, it should only take a couple of days each one. Yeah. Um, that would be tremendously handy because at the moment, not only is there vile, copious um, um, uh, overlap and, you know, repetition of content, which is unavoidable because, you know, because John's memory is not that good. He's always forgetting what he says. Um, Who are you and what am I doing here? But seriously, if we forget, our audience will forget too, right? Right? I don't know about, yeah, I don't know. The thing is, we all, well, we all have, we all remember different stuff depending on our biases and interests, don't we? And so you've forgotten about the stuff on fish. Unfortunately, I now remember stuff on fish, whether I want to or not. And I'm pretty sure I was talking fish! about... <laughs> so you remember that? I was talking about herbivory and fish, and I said that it was really rare and that there are herbivorous piranhas, the pacus, but that's it. Well, Marcus Buller, regular listener, he um, said that, you know, reminded me that's absolutely not true and that there's, uh, there's loads of even freshwater European fish, like, you know, members of the carp family that are, that are herbivorous. And do you remember when we were talking about Skull Island and the, the thing about Weta, we said that... Um, well, I mentioned that there were some food chains where there are some organisms that rely extensively on cannibalism. And you said, well, that seemed unlikely on energetic terms, which is obviously is true. But Marcus also reminds me that there are quite a few, again, fish, where there are um, uh, whole communities of adults that rely extensively on cannibalism of juveniles of their own and sympatric species. So... Um, yeah, cannibalism is important in some animals, but but yeah, it can't it can't obviously be the basis of an entire food chain with no other input or output. That's that's not what we're saying. But um, oh, and the eagles, the wetter <laughs> eagles in Wellington Airport, in New Zealand, um, one of them fell down due to an earthquake. Uh, there was a, a big earthquake in Wellington of I think it was five point six or something um, on the on the Richter scale. Richter scale. I was, I was, I'm so confused about that. I was always told, oh, people don't use the Richter scale anymore. They use another scale. Yeah. But then every single time you ever see any, any mention of how powerful an earthquake is, people talk of it on the Richter scale. In Are terms you talking of about journalists saying Richter scale? Uh, well, given that because I Have you read their reporting on paleontology? <laughs> I tend not to. <laughs> so yeah. there's your answer. Yeah. Everyone always says, oh, it was so-and-so on the book shelf. Thank you to Angela Wells for that. And um, also, before we move on, I wanted to say that um, Sarah Werning, based in... Is she still at Berkeley? I believe she is. Um, Sarah tells me that... Um, no, she's at Stony Brook, Stony Brook University. Sarah Werning is, is uh, uh, one of the most intimidating paleontologists of the, the modern age. And what I mean by that is, is oh my god! I go to her talks, and it's like, how much work did you, did how much work have you done on this stuff? It's just mind blowing. She mostly works on um, histology, growth rates um, pertaining to dinosaurs and other archosaurs and other animals. And um, I've written about her research at Tetsu because she was one of the first people to document medullary bone in non-bird dinosaurs after Schweitzer et al. reported medullary bone in Tyrannosaurus rex and Sarah then reported it in Allosaurus 
and Camptosaurus. And it, <clears throat> its correlation with histology indicated that um, some of these dinosaurs were sexually mature, what, even though they weren't osteologically mature. So basically they're able to produce eggs and such, um, even though they were equivalent to teenagers. So, um, which has implications for our understanding, you know, for what we think about dinosaur biology and stuff. So anyway, Sarah I think we've talked about this before, so yes. Oh, see, I told you. This is, come on, where's the transcript, people? (laughs) (laughs) This won't happen if we knew what what we're doing. Um, And it has to be searchable and probably online, I guess. Um, And we hold all rights. (laughs) 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 Anyway, there's a a blog hosted on the... um, uh, PLOS blogs, PLOS Public Library of Science, I'm sure everyone knows that. They have a blog there called uh, Integrative Paleontologists. The in- no, the Integrative Paleontologists. Uh, Sarah is one of several um, bloggers there, and she tells me that they're going to be, or maybe she specifically is writing an article about um, people who do podcasts that have a paleontological bent. And although I think we meander all over the place and don't necessarily talk about paleontology, we obviously do cover it. A bit so we are going to be mentioned there so thank you uh to sarah for that um yeah so, well, so you've me- done a lot of preamble before <laughs> the preamble darren you were meant to be doing okay well, maybe- tetsu's birthday yeah tetsu's but so today T- tetrapodology um it was eight years ago today when uh i published the very first Ted Bozology article in 2006. And, um, uh, well, my God, nearly a decade of uh, Ted Zooing. 2006? I can remember 2006. I can yeah, remember I... reading Ted Zoo in 2006. That's just, well, there you go. Yeah. That's frightening, isn't it? So by the time this podcast goes live, yeah, it's frightening. By the, by, well, <laughs> Think of having having children is the most frightening thing in terms of your, your own mortality and how little time you have. Um, by the time this podcast goes live, there will be a very long uh, review uh, of... Uh, are your children both sort of killer types then? You know, they, they're out to get you, do you think? Or are you just yeah. so horrible to them that you, they're just bound to kill you sooner or later? Well, they do kill you sooner or later because they literally take years off your life. I think that if you have children, your life is, is definitely shortened. Um, but then I go by the philosophy that you shouldn't even know how old you are anyway. So someone asks you how old you are, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was born a few decades ago. It's like you're not even meant to, you're not even meant to know that stuff. What's the point of even remembering it? I don't know how old you are. Once you get into how old I am, I mean, don't know how old you are either. But once you get into, I don't know, the fourth decade or something, doesn't matter. You can even lie to people and they don't know. <laughs> they don't check. <laughs> I know people that are getting younger. My wife got younger for. But years. Darren, is this just because you can't actually count? Uh, well, <laughs> some of those numbers are confusingly similar. They've got bulges in similar places and stuff. So six and seven, they sound very similar. They both got an S at the start. So, <laughs> um, and like I say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. How often do people specifically ask you for your birthday? Unless it's important. Like passport or something. Um, what the hell? What are we, what are we doing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Back on topic. Tetsu's birthday. So there will be a very long review of the year on, on Tetsu within, well, by the time you are in the future. Hi, future. So those of you reading this, yeah, I'll be out there. So 
there's a lot there's a lot to a lot to talk about in the the year the year that's happened and uh, I quite enjoy doing those articles but it does take a while to put them together. You know what? Tetsu's going to turn ten soon, isn't it? Well, two years. Yeah, and what to do? What to do then? We'll have to have a party. Yeah, a Tetsu party, definitely. Well, you know, one of the things it's always good to try and make out that you are heading somewhere and that you've achieved something worthwhile when you're reviewing time that's passed and looking back at 2013 i would say thanks in part to this podcast and a number of other endeavors 2013 is perhaps one of the first years in which tetsu has kind of come into its own as a brand as it were i mean i have had people say that to me before that um that this is this is like something that you've kind of carved out a niche and um yeah well, we've got a, you've got, we've got a comic for the podcast. We've got another thing which is coming along. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, you do. Sorry. So yeah, uh, it's turning into quite the brand, isn't it? A media empire, if you will. Media empire, the Tetsu Empire. So um, Adventure Times has been mentioned a couple of times on and off on the podcast and I've done a tremendously bad job of even explaining what it is. Have you actually watched any episodes yet? I have not watched any episodes. I really should. What are you doing? I mean I hear that I hear that it's good. It's just you know, (laughs) if you don't have kids you miss a lot of this stuff, don't you? Yeah. So our good friends Alberta Claw and uh I'm trying to remember his handle. Um uh uh, classical guy I think it is. John Turmel. Um they have produced a uh, uh, an adventure time style Tetsu time comic, which is available on DeviantArt and which I've linked to on Facebook and, and Twitter and such. But um, let's put a link to that, please, in the in the notes because uh, yeah. I think people get a kick. People get a kick out of that because of all the the amount of research they did on the background. To um, have you have you looked at these images on DeviantArt? Yeah, yeah. But oh, you have because the so in Adventure Time, um, Finn the human and Jake the dog they live in a treehouse. Well, in Tetsu Time, Darren and John, you're not a dog by the way, you, are, you do still appear to be human, but um, we we live in a treehouse. But do you know what the treehouse is? It's your giant pink magnolia yeah. from Truidon picture, That's and right. there's <clears throat> and there's um, there's various creatures that have been covered on, on Tetsu, and there's various of your. Uh, artwork in the background to the the treehouse and stuff like that. And there's a few other characters that are going. This is this is a, so so far as I understand from what um, Albert and John have been saying. Uh, Albert, Alberta, sorry, whatever you want to be called. Um, um, they are going to be you know doing a long running actual series of stories, and the, there has to be other characters in it as well. So there's a villain in it. Uh, I, <laughs> 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 see if you can guess who that is um it's kind of if you were gonna there are several villains in the tetsu verse in, in, in the real world i assure you there really are some genuine nasty pieces of work um god damn that mike Keesey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they've gone for they've gone for a character that's based on because it because one of the main characters one of the main like He's actually not a bad character. He's what's called chaotic neutral, but there's a chaotic neutral bad character in uh, Adventure Time called uh, the Ice King, and uh, there's a very similar character 
based on a enthusiastic amateur who has a significant web presence that we've spoken about a couple, a couple of other times. And uh, that's very funny. It's kind of inappropriate, though, because he's not really a villain. He's just someone who's there and annoying. But um, So, yeah, yeah, Tetsu time. Um, I could talk about it for a lot more, but I think that's, that's, that's enough. And, I, you know, guys, I certainly love what you've done. I'm sure John does as well. So uh, it's, it's funny and uh, it looks brilliant. And thank you. Yes, so, very cool. Um, I should say it's uh, Tetsu time tumblr.com for the easy to remember url okay uh what's next you've got a paper out don't you yeah 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 which i haven't seen so you can explain it to me i sent you the pdf did you i definitely sent you the pdf why aren't you reading these papers john yes i only so read your emails when it seems like it's relevant <laughs> What can I get out of it? Um, it's a special issue of Journal of Zoology that has been put together or is being put together, which is on the behavior of fossil organisms, which is something that we certainly don't know as much about as we might like, that we don't know much about it at all, really. But, you know, what do we know? And I've published a paper. It's called The Fossil Record of Bird Behavior. Now, of course, the hilarious way in which this paper would be summarized is, what do we know about bird behavior? What do we know about the behavior of fossil birds? Not much. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and somehow I managed to string that out into, uh, well, initially over 10,000 words, but then I had to cut it in half because that was more than twice as long as it could be. So um, we know a bit about, you know, the fossil record. We've got a whole list of taxa going all the way from um, Cretaceous animals like Enantornithines and Confucius ornithids all the way up to the, through all the, the paleogene bird groups like fossil um, rollers and um, uh, owls and herons and fossil ducks and stuff, which ha have stomach contents, giving us some idea as to what specific taxa ate. Then, of course, we have all the stuff that people have done on form function correlation, all the things where this animal's got like, you know, pointy claws and a, and a, and a sharp raptorial bill so it was presumably a, a predator we have those kinds of things um but interesting thing that i wanted to elaborate on in the paper and i had to condense down i'll cover this on tetsu is that um there is there we know from the living world there are some animals that look like they're adapted for something and don't do it and there are other animals that do stuff that they in morphological terms don't appear to be adapted for and this is something that's been covered on Tetsu a few times. It's something that paleontologists talk about a lot, but it's not something that really is discussed all that much. So to give specific examples, there are a load of raptors, predatory birds, that regularly eat fruit or vegetables. They eat, you know, avocados and potatoes and God knows what else. And there is um, a raptor called the palm nut vulture, which... <clears throat> So far as I know, from its skeleton, it looks like a, a you know, a raptorial eagle type thing, but it's a dedicated herbivore. It only eats palm fruit, palm nut fruit. Um, and there are animals, in terms of animals that don't do what we expect them to do, uh, morphologically, classic example among birds, dippers, this group of passerine birds that... I, I always used to think they look something like giant wrens, but that's not really true. They don't look like wrens at all, and they're not closely related to wrens either. But um, they are aquatic. They do this, they're called dippers, because obviously they live on fast-flowing streams, and they 
they uh, walk along the bottom of the water and forage for invertebrates. And there's, again, so far as I understand, and it's always dangerous making these kinds of statements because, of course, bear in mind we know next to nothing about their morphology anyway because nothing's ever been done on it. But um, so far as we know, there's no indication from their osteology, from their morphology, that you would predict them to be aquatic foragers if you only knew about them as fossils or only knew about them from their bones, whatever. So, mm. so those, those are caveats when we look at fossil animals. And there are a few fossil birds where their stomach contents don't match what you would predict from their osteology. So, for example, there's an animal called um, Salmila, which is part of the same group as Seriamas and forest rakids. Forest rakids, these mostly giant predatory flightless birds of South America, also now known from Europe and possibly Antarctica as well, and I think possibly Africa. And um, Salmila, its stomach contents indicate... I'm, I wonder if I'm thinking of the right taxon here. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm getting confused with another one. But um, certainly one of the paleogene members of this group, Seriema plus forest rakid group, there's one animal that's got stomach content shown that it was eating plants, which mm. does that mean that this was an unusual herbivorous species within an otherwise carnivorous group? Um, or does it mean, you think of the sample sizes we have of these things, we're generally talking about one specimen, at best two. Does it mean that we're looking at oddballs? Does it even mean that we're looking at individuals that ate something because they were sick or dying, or even that they ate something and then it killed them, and that's why it's preserved in their <laughs> <clears throat> those are all things you have to keep in mind with uh, <laughs> fossil data on stomach and gut contents um so yeah there's a there's a we do know something about um the 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 dietary preferences of fossil birds and i do summarize everything as as of the time of going to press um since then a couple of other things came out for example i said that there were no enantornithines with gastroliths and then this month january 2014 that an Antornithine with gastrolus was published. Yes, thanks a lot. Stupid progression <laughs> of knowledge. Um, well, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of that at all. I think <laughs> I try and freeze everything for a while so that I can catch up. And then, about, can people still, people par down the number of horned dinosaurs to about nine, please? <laughs> it's unmanageable. P.S. <laughs> I'm not a crackpot. Which, of course, you are in saying that. It's a dangerous opinion. Dangerous. <laughs> Telling people how much tax they should expect it to be. Um, yeah, and I got a whole lot, whole load of stuff. There's one more thing. One more thing on fossil record of bird behaviour. Load of stuff on reproductive behaviour and nests and all that sort of stuff. Do you know how many nests? You haven't read this paper, so how many nests would, would you think are known from the avian fossil record? Keeping in mind that there are birds that literally build rock hard ovens made of mud. Yeah. and birds that dig burrows, and there are birds that form nesting colonies of, like, millions of individuals. Literally millions. You've seen, we've all seen, you know, seabirds, millions yes. of penguins, yes. millions of individuals. So how many fossil birds' nests are there from the fossil, how many in the fossil record? Well, now, I have, a I have a bit of a problem here in that we have talked about this, and I made my guess, and you told me the answer, ah! which I still remember. However, I'm going to make. I'm going to say what I originally said, which I think was 120. Right, which I would think, given what I've just said, is it would be a perfectly sensible guess. And the real answer? Did I say one? <laughs> Last time? I think you might have said two. Was it on the podcast? 
No. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's. I've I've learned of a, a couple more since I last spoke about it, but I think it's four. So there's a a, a flamingo, a, a, an alleged stem flamingo nest from Miocene Spain, which was only recently published, like two years ago or something. And then there's kind of three possible duck nests from the Eocene and Oligocene, and which have been figured briefly, well, they've been figured and discussed briefly in literature from the 1930s. And that's it. And I just, there's something, there's something, I mean, you, well, you can understand a clump of vegetation doesn't preserve that well. But given no. the birds that, I mean, there are, okay, there are nest mounds made by megapodes, and there's many of those that, they're not fossil, but they're in the kind of, people call it the archaeological record, the zooarchaeological record that are like maybe a few thousand years old in places. Uh, famous, most famously, New Caledonia, covered with these giant nest mounds, supposedly made by the Silvionis, this extinct relative of megapodes. But, um, but yeah, oven birds, there's an enormous group of South American passerine birds, the oven birds, that build... I mean, the, the, the diversity of their nest architecture is, is staggering. There's like the group, this is one of the biggest passerine groups. I'm not going to say how many species, can't remember, but they produce like 20 different kinds of nests, most of which are made from hardened mud. Obviously so-called oven birds because they resemble old clay ovens. Like, come on, where are they? Surely that's the, the preservation potential for those things. Is, um, Especially considering that there is, uh, the, we've got a considerable number of non-alien dinosaur nests, right? Yeah, yeah, which, but which are nest mounds are all adults sitting on top of nests. So I suppose that's the... That's but you've the, got the juvenile, the eggs in situ in lots of them, right? Yeah, so there's quite a few um, uh, bird mesozoic nesting colonies and also paleogene nesting colonies where you have clumps of eggs or associations of eggshells. But in terms of an actual... Uh, did, I say, did I start this conversation by, by saying vegetative nest? I don't think I did. <laughs> I screwed up. So I don't mean a nest as in an aggregation of eggs. I mean an actual yeah. construct involving vegetation. It's like those, I mean, or, or, or things made out of sediment, not just scrapes in the ground. Yeah, scrapes yeah. in the ground. There's a bunch of those known all the way back to the Cretaceous. So we can say that, that birds probably inherited this behavior from other dinosaurs. They've always been building little scrapes in the ground and sitting on them. Um, something with, that we know that non-bird theropods did because we've got them preserved in those postures. But in terms of nests actually made of vegetation, um, or even, is, it, is it that putting nests in trees is the key innovation that basically takes them out of the fossil record? Because... The nest, the vegetative nests that people say they found, the, this stem flamingo one and these couple of duck ones, obviously those are birds that produce nests on the ground, but the ones that nest in the trees, nah. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's got to be it. Well, it doesn't have to be, but that's a very likely likely hypothesis. But it still seems odd because you, you nests drop out of trees all the time. You know, maybe not in perfect state, but you'd expect a lot of them to be settling on the bottom of lagoons and getting preserved with all the other... Um, vegetation and soft tissue of animals and stuff. Yeah, it's very strange. So is it that we have them and people aren't describing them because they don't think they're interesting? Is it because mm. we have them and people misinterpret them? They see a pile of sticks and think it's a tangle of roots or something. They don't realise it could be a nest. Yeah. Um, 
or, or similar possibilities. Maybe that's it. Maybe they, they are actually in the fossil record, but they're not described or reported. Um, because I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few kind of like lagoonal environments represented in the fossil record where you do have tangles of vegetation. But people just, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe someone needs to look into this. <laughs> someone that's not you. <laughs> well, what you need is one of those things where what's going to happen is someone's going to find a special way to identify um, vegetation used in nests. Now, how would you do that? I mean, because a lot of birds just pick up sticks from the ground. Very few of them actually leave distinctive marks. Would there be unique biochemical traces or something or geochemical signatures on sticks using vegetation using nests? You can kind of understand theoretically there would be, but whether you could detect it or not. Oh, I think it's uh, got to be as simple as the patterning of the twigs, right? Uh, don't start with looser form things. Start looking for, you know, the most nesty of nests well, and got, try and see if you can find any of those. Uh, yeah, a lot of them use sediment. They like plaster mud on the inside or whatever to give it more mm. of a shape. So I guess the problem is they just fall to bits or preserve mm. the preservation potential is clearly really low. So um, hmm. anyway, I've got this, this, this paper has only just come out online. I need to talk about untouchable zoology, but I haven't had time. I have too many other things happening. Where is and it? Journal of Zoology. Um, so it's currently paywalled. I haven't sneakily put it online anywhere. But um, oh, and I used I used the Matt Martinuick, um illustration, his uh, Yehalornis, uh, seed-eating Yehalornis illustration. We're still pronouncing I, that wrong, you know. So, yeah, well, how is it then? How, how do you say it? I, 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 I would need to hear it. He told me that it was the other way round, that the syllables at the end were the other way round. Um, Instead of Martinuick, Ma it should be... Martin. Martin Nyuk. Martin Nyuk. I think we should stop there. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. Hey, let's plug his book again. Uh, what's it called? F uh, Birds, fossil wing things. Um, where the hell is <laughs> <laughs> Field Guide to Mesozoic Birds. Yes. Buy his book to, to make up for our hashing of his surname. Um, it's a great book. I love it. Uh, yeah. He's also got a great blog. It's Dino Goss. Oh, yeah. Dinogos, yeah. Yes. Confessions of an armchair paleontologist. Ah, okay. So let's move on because you know what's, ha what's happening now, Darren. What? You know what's happening now? What? I'm not paying attention. Sorry. What is happening? Cash for questions! Cash for questions! C for Q well. on Tetsu. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got questions. We've got questions. We're richer than astronauts, I tell you. Richer <laughs> than astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> the number of questions is three. Now we should yeah. just take these in order. The order we yep. got them in. Okay. So the first question from Chris Christian Mullally. Mullally. Uh sorry about the pronunciation there. Wasn't that difficult? Christian Mullally. Mullally. You're probably wrong though, aren't you? What the anyway. Why do why do female Asian elephants lack useful tusks? when they are present in all other recent elephant species. What do you reckon? I don't know. Have you put any thought into this? I have not, because this is this is the Tet Zoo podcast. I'm oh, here to no. ask you the question. You mean it's all me. down to me? Well, okay, Ugh, where do we start on this one? This is, this is nasty. Uh, thank you very much for the question. It's a really good one. 
A um, bit of terminology to start with. So elephants are a subgroup of proboscideans. Don't so we mustn't say when we're referring to proboscideans that aren't elephants, we shouldn't say that all proboscideans are elephants. Does that make sense? Elephants are a subgroup of proboscideans. So proboscideans, well known, they start out in the Paleocene or, or so as relatively small um, animals that uh, like there's this tax. Everyone knows about Morotherium or Morotherium, this Eocene animal from uh, northern Egypt. But there's quite a few others. Um, Phosphotherium is one of the best known ones from from Morocco, from the Paleocene of Morocco. It's an animal the size of not much bigger than like a medium sized dog. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, fifty, sixty centimeters long, tiny, tiny promocidian. And these early ones, they start developing short tusks. And then obviously you have all these like profound body changes that occur within proboscideans. You end up with a diversity of proboscideans as well as elephants as well that have super enlarged tusks. Tusks aren't canines, something that's often assumed. They're actually, um, they're actually highly modified incisors. And one of the things that makes um, modern elephants very unusual compared to the vast majority of tusked proboscideans is that um, modern elephants lack mandibular tusks. Mandibular tusks, tusks in the lower jaw, are normal for proboscideans. We know of various kind of weird uh, reductions and losses in both mandibular and maxillary tusks that have occurred in proboscidean evolution. For example, <clears throat> and some of this must have happened really early in proboscidean evolution, like dinotheres, this famously weird group of um, proboscideans with uh, giant down curved mandibular tusks, they don't have any maxillary tusks. And the fossil record indicates that dinotheres must have evolved. They're best known from um, really big species that are present from the Miocene to the Pleistocene. But the fossil record shows that they must have actually originated way back in like the Eocene. Um, there's, there's like an Oligocene one from Turkey, but I don't think we've got Eocene ones. But early on in their history, they must have lost maxillary uh, teeth, maxillary tusks, sorry, maxillary tusks. Modern elephants like maxillary tusks. And mastodons, this is a group that, again, is not closely related to living elephants. They must have diverged way back in the Oligocene. Uh, they also substantially reduced and in some populations also lost their um, mandibular tusks, which makes them unusual, makes them superficially like living elephants, even though they weren't close to them. So why do we have some? So, so that's kind of that's kind of like the background. You got to get in, in your mind the fact that there's you know, all these tusked proboscideans, the majority of which have mandibular tusks, but mandibular tusks are lost here and there. So so we're, living elephants are left with maxillary tusks, and then we have populations of various of of the the living species. There are three living elephant species: the two African ones and the Asian one, where we have um, so. In, the Asian elephant, females, very short tusks. Um, these do sometimes, uh, so they can be really short and still protrude from the upper lip, or they can be obscured by the upper lip, or, or they can be quite large in females. But generally when they're short, they're called, uh, I presume it's pronounced tushes, it's written tushes, and I've always thought that's how it's uh, supposed to be said as well. I hope that's true. Um, <clears throat> and then we also have populations of, of some of the African elephants, particularly the African savannah or bush elephant, where you have females with uh, reduced or absent tusks. And you even have some populations where males 
have no tusks. They actually have modern tuskless elephant populations. So what selective pressures are leading to strong sexual dimorphism in the Asian elephant, leading females to have reduced or absent tusks? And what I think is what's also interesting is what is leading in general to some elephants um, having reduced or absent tusks in both sexes. And um, well, this is this. Um, why, why do elephants have tusks in the first place? It's a rhetorical question, difficult thing to answer um, without a time machine, without watching evolution happen. But um, one of the things that's often said about tusks, and I've said this myself in work I've published with other people on sexual selection in animals, is um, a lot of structures that seem to have like, a main function, a main that they seem to have evolved under pressure for one particular function, like in elephants fighting or self-defense. Um, they're actually multifunctional. They've got loads of different things, loads of different uses, which, which might be contributing to their evolution as well. And people have said, oh, well, you know, it's well known that elephants use their tusks not just in fighting and showing off, but also in stripping bark and digging and um, um, carrying things, you know, all manner of other, of other functions. Um, but um, living elephants consistently portray strong sexual dimorphism in terms of the tusk length and the tusk thickness. And also in the it's sometimes said that the actual grain of the dentine and the, the, the actual structure of the tusks is different as well from the, from the sex. I don't know if that's true, but it's what people who work on ivory say. Um, so <clears throat> um, why? Why is there this strong sexual dimorphism in their tusks? Well, it's implied that this is actually one of those sexually selected things where females are specifically preferring to mate with big tusked males. And ever, so, which, which indicates that big tusks are a sign of genetic fitness. And there's some data. There's one study published by Raman Sukumar and colleagues, um, which specifically looked at parasite load in Asian elephants and tusk length. And they showed that the male Asian elephants with the biggest tusks were the healthiest in terms of parasite load. Elephants are riddled with parasites, uh, for compared to other herbivorous mammals, they're not really sure why that is, but they are. They have a really high nematode um, infestation. It's really common in, in in their guts. So, so it would seem that female selection is pushing for males to evolve bigger tusks. And um, there's some indication that dimorphism dimorphism of this kind is present in some fossil elephants as well. There's a couple of studies that have been done on uh, mastodons which reveal that they had a similar kind of sexual dimorphism, males being larger and more robust overall, and also with larger, thicker tusks, suggesting that they are operating under the same selection pressure. So um, if female selection is pushing males to have bigger, showier tusks, now, going back to what I just said about tusks being multifunctional and being used in foraging and feeding and stuff, does this actually indicate that the female preference for big tusks and the correlation of tusks with fitness, does this mean that all those other uses for tusks are actually not important? They are not, contrary to what I just said, they're not driving forces behind the evolution of the tusks. And that sexual selection, therefore, is the primary driving force of tusk evolution. So <clears throat> to, to 
put this another way, does it mean that, yes, elephants can use their tusks as tools, as for fighting off predators, for digging holes, blah, 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 for thermoregulation, whatever. But does it mean that those things are purely incidental and they do those things because they have the tusks and that the um, sexual selection is the primary driving mechanism behind tusk evolution in the first place? Um, and why is it? I bear in mind, you know, we don't know the answers to any of these questions and there's hardly anything written about it. I did go and check. I have quite a lot of elephant books, partly because there's a lot of them that have been written, a group of animals where there are quite a lot of good books. And they just gloss over this thing about sexual dimorphism in tusks. They say that there is sexual dimorphism and they talk about males, obviously. Everybody starts talking about the fact that there, are, there have been elephants in recent years, Asian elephants and African savannah and African forest elephants that have got tusks crazy sizes, you know, over 2.5 meters long, over three meters long in some cases. But nobody ever really talks much about a possible mechanism explaining sexual dimorphism in tusks, especially the fact that it's so prevalent in Asian elephants. Why, why do they have so much, such a stronger degree of sexual dimorphism in tusk form than do the African elephants? And I've got one kind of idea on that, um, a very a very poorly thought out and sort of confused idea. But so Christian anyway. will get his Christian will get his money's <laughs> worth then. <laughs> um, Asian elephants. Uh, now there's there's lots going on in terms of the systematics and phylogeny of elephants at the moment. There are various competing ideas as to which extinct species belong to which lineage. Um, because there are several confusing, messed up taxa like um, Paleoloxodon and, uh, well, anything, all the fossil ones refer to Elephas, the same taxon as the living Asian elephant. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of like moving around going on. It's really, really, it hasn't been resolved yet. But ignore all that for the time being. For, there's a load of fossil elephants that are referred to Elephas, the same genus as the as a extant Asian elephant. And they are certainly not um, restricted to tropical Asia. They're across the whole of Asia, but they're also across Europe and also across Africa as well. And bear in mind, this might not be right. They might not actually be members of this lineage, but whatever. The, um, the general picture that you get from that view is that Elephas, the Asian elephant-style elephants, they were the dominant grassland elephant for most of the... Miocene, Pliocene, and Pleistocene, and Loxodonta, the elephant today that we associate with grassland habitats in Africa, was a generally smaller forest elephant. And it has only recently, Loxodonta has only recently moved out onto the savannas and evolved large body size, whereas Elephas was the dominant grassland elephant. And it was, it was across all grassland habitats in tropical Africa, and like I say, likewise in Asia. And obviously in Asia is the only place it survives. And if that's true, and I'm saying there are caveats, that might not be true at all, but if that is true, would it mean that Elephas has been subjected to a longer um, history of selective pressures whereby animals are viewing each other at distance in open environments, would it mean that, that female um, Asian elephant-type elephants have been judging males on um, tusk quality and therefore overall fitness for a much longer period of time than has been the case in the mostly forest-dwelling Loxodonta. So does that, does that make sense, what I've just said? Um, I'm not sure it does, no. 
Why not? Explain. <laughs> well, because I think what we're trying to do is explain why, going back to the original question, why the female Asian elephants lost their tusks. Yeah. Because they seem to be primitive, aren't they? Um, I don't know anything about elephant well, evolution, no. which is well, why no, I no. haven't... No, it's an advanced thing. Losing, reducing the tusk is an advanced thing, given that long... No, that's what I'm saying. Yes. I'm yeah, saying maxillary... the, the plesiomorphic state is having tusks, yeah. correct? So we've yeah. got to explain the loss in fe Asian female elephants, not the just the um, dimorphism. Yeah. Um, well, if, female, if there's strong female preference for tusked males then is it I, th I i did try and cover this i just i can't explain it well it's just that is it if it if tusk if tusk presence is sexually selected if females are specifically choosing to mate with so so the male genes are being perpetuated through their big tusks does this mean that the only reason that they retain big tusks ah oh, yeah i <laughs> i think what you were getting at there is that that tusks were not actually ever adaptive adaptive functionally adaptive they were sexually adaptive yeah um but i still don't think that really explains why they lost the tusks whereas the, in earlier the the plesiomorphic state is to have the tusks what's the pressure on the females to reduce their tusks what's that mm. yep i don't know there we go. There's a great non-answer for Christian. <laughs> we do the know. The show was long-winded, though. <laughs> we, we, know, we know in modern, there are some, mod, like I said, there are modern African elephant populations where males are tuskless, tuskless as well as females, and there are occasional tuskless male Asian elephants. There's even a name for them. They're called Macnus, I think. Um, and that uh, lack of tusks in some modern populations has been linked to selection by people. Obviously, people have Poaching, artificially yeah. selected them. So. Oh, and hunting, yeah. Yeah, hunting. But, yeah. but I don't think that was significantly affecting elephants during their geological history. So... <laughs> <laughs> No. This is well. There, are, how many things are there where there's a sensible question about the natural world, and actually, nobody has really looked into it. I mean, to my knowledge, this hasn't not hasn't been studied. It's just assumed that it's a well-known sexually uh, the sexual dimorphism hey, present in tusks. Is yeah, I have a theory that it was always sexually selected, but there was a. Ooga booga booga genetic link between the male and female tusk length and somehow the asian elephant has managed to decouple this yeah. allowing the um female that it doesn't that doesn't have the sele sexual selective pressure to have big tusks to just lose them because they're not useful that, well i think i think that's that's pretty plausible I would, I would say something along the same lines ineluctable morphological const what's the term are uh, these things that are like linked the fact that what the fact that because males and females have to be similar in body shape, then what is what is selected for in one gender is in one sex is um, uh, generally expressed in, in the other one. Yeah. Um, but um, or was it that there are in other elephant 
and Proboscidean lineages, is it that there are selective pressures in addition to sexual selection that's, that mean that keeping the tusks is adaptive, whereas that has been lost or reduced in uh, Elephas? And we also don't know, again, so far as I know, not being a Proboscidean expert, but we don't know what the distribution of this sexual dimorphism is in the fossil ones people have like i said people have looked at like sexual dimorphism in in mastodons and also there's a study done on one of the gomphotheres gomphotherium angustidens a french population where sexual dimorphism was reported in the mandibular tusk not the maxillary ones but there are pictures there's one figure this is there's a study done by tassi this guy who, who, who published a lot on proboscideans there's an illustration that shows what looks like a male and female gomphotherium and the female is tuskless and um, I've often wondered whether that indicates that have we been misled? Is it that in actual fact, strong sexual dimorphism in tusk form and length was actually far more widespread in extinct proboscideans? And we've been misled by the fact that the, the, good, the, good, the good record of being like, you know, good skulls is always far lower than you expect mm. it to be. So... Um, well, if we want to, if we want to go any further with this, if we want to, not today, but I mean in general, if we want to follow this up, we basically need to get someone who's a, uh, who is a working expert on uh, proboscideans, um, and uh, thrash it out again. Well, see, we might see. very well hear from them. Well, I, I think we need to move on to our next cash for question. <laughs> so was that was that a stupid and useless, confusing mess? <laughs> Um, uh, apologies if it was I think it's pretty obvious that well I don't know what the answer is but I also don't think that anybody knows what the answer is and I also don't think the key thing is I don't think anybody has really 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 thought about this or put down their thoughts um, on paper and if I'm wrong and it's quite possible that I am then you know let us know I'd, I'd love to know if there's some work out there on, on this issue why is Eliphas specifically the Asian elephant lineage why is that lineage so um yeah, so dimorphic in tusk form. Yes. Good question. Okay, so question number two from Frank Landis. Thanks, Frank, for having an easy-to-pronounce name. <laughs> I have a question for the podcast. Yes, indeed. I probably shouldn't read that out. <laughs> Why did mammals win out in the Paleocene? All the usual suspects, dinosaurs, crocs, and mammals made it through, just as they had in, in past mass, mass extinctions. But unlike past, mammals took over even though both the theropods, birds, and crocs proliferated too. What was different after the KT? Well, actually, it's the KPG now, isn't it? Which is horrible. <laughs> was it something new and different about the mammals, or was it a lack of sauropods? Lack sauropods, of sauropods. Is, is an interesting one to pick on there, yeah. but what's your answer, Darren? Uh, well, again, I don't know. I have no idea at all. But one of the first things that I think about with an issue like this is... Um, when people say, why did mammals, you know, win out? Why were mammals more, more successful? Is I think that might be kind of the wrong way of thinking about it because um, there's different kinds of success, aren't there? And we think of mammals as uber successful because they're big and obvious and because we are mammals and obviously we dominate the world. But in terms of, you know, how do we measure success in terms of numbers of species uh, and various other, you know, biomass and other metrics you want to use, um, your mammals, yeah, mammals are successful, but they're not the most successful. I mean, in terms of large body size, yes, 
they definitely are in the modern world. But birds are more successful in terms of numbers of species. There's maybe twice as many birds as there are mammals. Yeah, but birds are cheap. They just have thousands of species where one would do. Right, okay. okay so right, okay, so that knocks down that otherwise infallible argument. And uh, lizards and snakes, thousands and thousands of those as well. Or are you going to say the same thing about that? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not. I think, no, but I think that there's still, okay, fine, yeah, all that, fine. Let's boilerplate stuff. But the fact is that mammals tremendously diversified after the... Um, end of Cretaceous extinction. I don't think there's any doubting that, is there? It, morphologically and well, there's phylogenetically, subs- there's an explosion. There's substantial argument as to when, when exactly, exactly when the radiation yeah, occurred, yeah. yeah. Whether it's like happened before the end of KPG. Yeah, but, all, but, but back then, okay, so there might yeah. have been a lot of different lineages, but they weren't tremendously morphologically diverse. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely true, yeah. 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 Um, so there was an explosion of at least niche filling from mammals. Yes. Niche. It's a bit of a weird term. Do you know, Ameri- do you know how Americans say it? I've, I've yeah, you it. mention this every <laughs> podcast. <laughs> niche. <laughs> Sounds horrible. <laughs> sort yourself out, America. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take that, <Niche>. America. <laughs> I have a bad niche. <laughs> <clears throat> My auntie got stuck in a niche. <laughs> Sorry. Auntie, what was she that? Took wrong, she took the wrong route. <laughs> I don't think this is what Frank's paying for. Sorry. <laughs> Back on topic. So, answer the question: Why is there an explosion of mammals instead of an explosion of crocs or dinosaurs refilling um, the previous eco space they used to? Hmm. It's hard to think of like uh, anything that sounds at all sensible without harking back to the sort of stuff that people have said, you know, decades, decades past, which are kind of sounds very... Uh, th- you don't talk about political correctness when it comes to non-humans, so far as I know. But um, um, the stuff that people have said about, you know, mammals being better at filling ecosystems because they... I, I think reproductive turnover has got a lot to do with it, the fact that... Um, mammals um we're talking about we're to all the all the small ancestral members of lineages that we're talking about at this time in the paleocene mostly paleocene and eocene they're animals that are producing huge litters and uh, you know, maturing very quickly so is there some reproductive edge that mammals have over some of these other other groups and intuitively <laughs> Kind of think, well, no, there isn't really. I mean, there is over birds because modern birds may have smaller clutches, smaller like numbers of, of babies they can produce in a year than, than equivalent sized mammals, which actually makes birds different from non-bird dinosaurs, given that they seem to mostly produce larger clutches and maybe had you know been far more K select uh, R selected, sorry, R selected. That means that they're you know producing lots of babies, high mortality, but large percentage of the population occupied by babies as opposed to case-selected animals which produce a small number of babies and put a lot of um, effort into, into seeing the babies through to maturity. So is there something about mammals that mean they're better able to produce lots of offspring that mature faster? Is there something about mammal uh, adaptive diversity that means those kind of like early generalist lineages that we're talking about in the Paleogene 
are they better able to quickly fill up ecosystems? Because if you think about things with a, like a non-specialized um, pseudo-insectivore-style dentition, those animals generally aren't specialists. They can move into an environment and maybe take advantage of like a, you know, diversity of resources. Now you're moving into my answer. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Just wanted to get that in there before you started on it, but yes. You already say it. <laughs> no, no. It's what I was going to say. Right. But but again, I still I still am not sure why that makes mammals like uh adaptively, you know, competitively superior in any way to uh to things like but Well, then... okay, but let's let's take some specific like okay, what about birds? Birds are already pretty specialized. It's it's difficult for them, I think, just from a starting point, to evolve into, say, large grazer roles, that sort of thing. It's just they've become very specialised to, towards flight. Of course, there are flightless birds, but you can see the trade-offs they've had to do to, to do that. I, I think that they, they, are, they were too far down a line to rapidly come back out and fill up a whole bunch of... Mm. grazing general herbivore type niches yeah so i think that that's i mean i think that's the most likely reason birds didn't do it uh, i don't actually know very much about croc diversity in the cretaceous what's that like well it's not bad um but most of the lineages that survive are amphibious you know in some in some way tied with water there are a few semi-terrestrial or strongly terrestrial lineages like some sebakasukians and such that do make it through but um you don't see anything like a diversity of omnivores or herbivores you know we, we know there were omnivorous and herbivorous crocs in the mesozoic but mm. they don't make it through into the cenozoic and certainly don't diversify whereas yeah the mammals that we're talking about all these small it's always a problem that people like imagine them as looking like shrews where you know they superficially they may have been somewhat like that but they're kind of hard for us to visualize the animals that we're talking about, uh, paleorhynchocyanines and leptic tictids and anagalins and all these uh, like pantodonts and uh, all the mesonychian lineages and uh, hyopsodontids and th there's, a, there's a lot of them. Um, they are kind of like combinations of uh, a certain squirreliness with a certain sort of shrewiness about the shrewy hedgehoggishness about them. and then also with some kind of archaic kind of heavy limbed sort of ungulateness about the ones that get towards like hyrax size or you know domestic cat size things so in, in view of that a lot of them do seem to be yeah sort of uh what's that word for like ultimate generalists kind of able to yeah, move into a place, dig a little bit, you know, find tubers and bugs in the soil and climb a little bit and take advantage of fruits and nuts and other things and eat a little bit of leaves if they want, chew on some carrion if they want. So, um, and, and is, it just, is it just luck, the fact that mammals were at that, you know, stage in the revolution, the fact that there were several lineages of generally morphologically similar ecological generalists living at that time at the end of the Cretaceous and in the Paleocene is that is that what gave them the edge um and plus also what I said about them being uh, able to you know uh, they, they have a particular biology which means already that they are maturing 
uh, early in life, producing large litters, potentially producing a huge numbers of babies in a year, and therefore able to fill up ecosystems quickly. Is it all that stuff that together does give them the edge? Um, I, I kind of think that's can't think of another answer. I don't I don't really think that mammals are superior in any other way, like physiologically or anything like well, that. Well, the physiological thing might be an answer um, that perhaps. Uh, Oh God! I've been reading a little bit about this recently after making a uh, ill-informed comment on Facebook about something. Um, I decided to actually read up a little bit on what's known about dinosaur metabolism, and it oh God, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Oh my head. But okay, so animals less able to control their body temperature through uh, internal means, so basically behavioural means as their only way of controlling their body temperature might have some disadvantage in terms of global spread of filling up um, a lot of ecological niches compared to something which has, which is warm-blooded in the more traditional sense, or even maybe in the less traditional sense, like it seems dinosaurs were. But that, that, that um, being able to having somewhat a raised metabolism and being able to control your temperature through non-behavioral means might be might be an advantage it might just be an advantage for spreading into lots of lots of uh different niches there might be niches that it's very difficult to, for big cold-blooded animals to fill yeah and bear in mind obviously the the paleogene world is very different from the modern world there was this event known as the well, it's got several different names but there was some kind of thermal maximum over the paleocene and eocene the well, well the average global temperature is like 18 degrees c or something you're talking about sort of pole to pole rainforests that kind of thing which seems to be mm -hmm. the kind of habitat that we've got good evidence now there were giant snakes and crocs and things living in the world at that time bigger than you know the average body size is larger than you'd expect for the rest of the Cenozoic, I understand. So that kind of seems counterintuitive to the idea that like mammals would have been advantaged because wouldn't frogs and lizards and crocs and such be advantaged. But maybe, well, things change. We know that there was a cooling in the Eocene and then obviously you get so-called ice house conditions setting in by the Oligocene. So by that time, which is what, you know, and it's not until the Eocene and I think the mid and late Eocene that you get like big bodied mammals as in 50, 100 kilos and giant ones by the end of the Eocene as in tons. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying it could have something to do with it. I'm not convinced it necessarily is. Yeah. But, um, I think it could. I mean, this, this sort of might explain why they, they did better than lizards did, for example, in terms of adaptive radiation. Because mm. um, lots of lizards are, you know, relatively superficially similar in terms of being relatively small, similar shapes to each other's, to each other, and you know, scampering about, possibly doing relatively generous, generalist things, but um, they didn't, they didn't explode like mammals did. So yeah, I think, I think uh, yeah, so yeah, I think it's kind of a combination of. Um, you know, Stephen Jay Gould was always harping on about this uh, historical contingency. Uh, if you reran the tape of life, you it wouldn't like you wouldn't get the same sequence of events. A lot of things that happen in the history of life are probably down to chance. 
rather than destiny. I do think that is part of it. I think so. Going back to what we were saying about placental mammals in particular, I mean, we mustn't forget metatherians and monotremes. Well, monotremes, just one little lineage of a handful of species, but we mustn't forget them as well. But and multituberculates also, which obviously persisted into the Cenozoic and got in, got certainly as late as the uh, Eocene. But um, I think the fact that placental mammals were kind of at the right place, right time, you've got a time in history where there's a number of lineages of these little generalists that make it through this extinction event. That's kind of, that. that is, in a way, that is just luck. That is down to chance of the type that Gould was talking about. But then also, I would agree, I would yeah reiterate what we what we've said that they also are right time right place in terms of like having this they're not overly specialized they're able to generalize they're they're in a good place they have the right kind of physiology the right kind of anatomy uh to allow them to explode in diversity which they did real quick yeah, yeah. there we yeah. go answered Bam. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, despite calling this cash for questions, it doesn't actually have to be a question, Darren, and this one isn't a question. Oh, just cash, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so let's go down the pub. Um, no, it's a request for a topic. It's from Llewellyn Reese. Please is it, is discuss... It, sorry? Is it really, is it really Llewellyn? I, I also it's Llewellyn. Well, I believe that's... Uh, like a diminutive, isn't it? Okay. But this is a very formal podcast, and we call people by their full names. Sorry, Llewellyn. <laughs> Thank you for your comment. Okay, can I read this question out now? Oh, please. Yeah, all right. Please, it's not a question. Sorry, it's not a question. <laughs> please discuss the outer integument of ornithodirons on the podcast. Yeah, that's, that's where we are especially hairy pterosaurs and any possible connection to feathers, possibly feathered ornithischians, scaled, scaly ornithischians and sauropods. Thank mm. you. Mm. Mm. That's a big topic. Now, and this, this, is, this is a topic that is always there, has been since the mid-1990s. It's always like, you know, newsworthy, I mean. Um, not only because it's fueled by continuing uh, discoveries, mostly coming out of China, but also because it's been in the news lately because there was a, there was a, a, a I don't know if it was a talk or a poster, but there was a thing at the SVP meeting in Los Angeles um, by uh, Paul Barra and Richard Butler, I believe, on the distribution of integumentary structures in archosaurs. And they said that, they said something that, I don't know, I, I can't pretend that you don't hear this enough. You hear it a lot. The fact that, well, yes, we've got the you know furry pterosaurs and feathery theropods, and we've got ornithischian dinosaurs with filaments, um, only a couple of taxa, mind you. But they say, well, don't forget, we've also got all these dinosaurs that are covered in scales as well, and we've got whole lineages where, so far as we know, all the members of the lineages, all the evidence we have is for scaly skin. Um, so they're saying, well, you know, look at the distribution of this. No, it actually doesn't support the view that fibrous or feathery integument is widespread across dinosaurs or ornithodirons or archosaurs and um yeah this is this isn't a novel point of view you hear it all the time and i often hear it from scientists who don't like seeing 
pictures like yours of a furry hypsilophodon or whatever. You know, Jim Kirkland was complaining about this a while ago, saying, oh, we're putting too many feathers on things. We need to cut back. Um, so, um, yeah, and nobody has forgotten the fact that there are big dinosaurs with, um, with scaly skin. But whether it's, whether it's right to say that, uh, maybe I should back up a bit, become a, a little bit like too far in this already. If, if you look at a cladogram of archosaurs, this may be common knowledge to basically everyone listening to this podcast, but if you think of the shape of the archosaur phylogeny, and yes, we are including pterosaurs within archosaurs, not going for any crackpot nonsense um, that put them outside of archosauria. And there's good reasons for that, you know, not just because... <laughs> uh, I, I have some things to say about this again in the, in the, the, the birthday article that, that will appear online today. Um, anyway, if, okay, so pterosaurs are furry. There's no doubt about that. There have been doubts raised over the years, but they're all erroneous. They have been dismissed by, you know, the d discoveries that definitely show there are definitely pterosaurs with furry bodies. Fibrous yeah. integument, the structures are called pycnofibers, okay? And this, the pycnofiber covering in some pterosaurs is so dense that they would have looked furry. They wouldn't have had like a... There's, there's a popular book on pterosaurs by a well-known pterosaur expert which says that the covering of the fibers on a pterosaur would be akin to the sort of distribution of hairs on a human forearm. Well, even the hairiest person is, is it says that, that it would be similar to a hairy person. It's like, no, <laughs> no, Are we talk. Well, maybe if we're talking Mark Witten style, sort of, we're not talking <laughs> Mark Witten style. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, we're talking about like a proper thick pelage like that of a, like Mark Witten. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, I, I'm not going to comment on this sorry Mark it's John it's John doing it Mark not me um, zero state win as he's known um, 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 so you've got to basically imagine pterosaurs as looking like bats or cats or rats that kind of thing yeah. we're talking about like a proper full on pelage That's, that is what the fossils indicate they, they had right so then so Pterosaurs are the sister tax onto dinosauromorphs, and within dinosauromorphs, well, we've got these bristle-like. Well, we keep on calling them bristles. People call them bristles. These things known for Tianulong and Cetacosaurus. One, only one specimen of Cetacosaurus, and they shouldn't be called bristles really because that implies that they're kind of like thick and bristly, mm. <laughs> like whiskers or pig bristles, but they're actually not. They appear to be fairly for their length very narrow and kind of slim and flexible more like long uh floppy hairs of some sort i mean the, the you've seen you've seen this unpublished specimen of tianulong the heterodontosaurid which is yeah. the thing the other thing is covered in again a thick pelt exactly like a mesal mammal exactly like uh you know a thing that's uncontroversially covered in a thick pelt there is a tianulong specimen there are pictures online. It's been published in a magazine, but not described in a technical paper. And around its body, this thing has like a thick halo of hair. And this is, we're talking about a little ornithischian dinosaur. And then obviously you get into theropods, where we've got all the celurosaurs with undoubted feathers. We've got things like compsognathids, which are celurosaurs as well. But we've got those things with, with possibly filamentous integument, although that's now controversial because we may have been... Conf we, we may have mistaken degraded normal feathers for hair-like feathers 
which is a whole another argument. Mm. And then we've got yeah, then we got like tyrannosaurs and uh, ostrich dinosaurs as well, and and maybe controversially, um, allosaurs and spinosaurs maybe with with simple filam- filamentous integument as well. That's those cases are are all controversial. The the spinosaur is um, Sciuromimus, little Solnhofen um, theropod, not very big. I don't know, like less than fifty centimeters long. Supposed to have like a bushy tail and evidence for fibrous integument, um, hair-like integument, particularly on its tail, but over the rest of it as well. It, first of all, it's controversial because is it definitely a spinosaur-type animal? That's yeah. controversial. It may not be. It may be a silurosaur. And secondly, does it really preserve evidence of fibrous things? I mean, they're insanely like wispy and tiny, the, the structures that have been identified as integumentary structures. Um, Jura Veneta, another Solnhofen um, theropod, also has tiny filaments present on the tail, which some people have said are also external integumentary uh, structures. Um, and then the allosaur is um, the Carcharodontosaurian um, concavenator, written concave nader, <laughs> concavenator, which which is which has lumps on its ulna, which people have identified as quill nodes. So, um, is there evidence for furry forelimbs in 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 uh, feathery forelimbs in in allosaurs? Um, so, in view of all that, in view of I don't know if people can visualize that as a tree in front of them, but does it mean that the common ancestor for pterosaur, the pterosaur lineage and the dinosaur lineage, doesn't mean that the common ancestor was, uh, did it have integumentary structures and that they were therefore inherited by pterosaurs, inherited by dinosaurs, in which case we see them in some small ornithischians, we see them in small theropods, and we don't yet see them on sauropodomorphs or on the majority of ornithischians because we don't have good enough fossils. Or is it that the structures evolved independently in members of the pterosaur lineage and members of the dinosaur lineage? Did they evolve independently once or twice in uh, dinosaurs and then nothing to do with pterosaurs, uh, the structures in pterosaurs? All of these ideas have been put out there. Um, several people have, including noted paleontologists like Xu Xing, the guy who's behind most of the lioning feather theropods, they, they have argued that the the idea of a common ancestor for ornithodirons, for uh, pterosaurs and dinosaurs. The, co- the idea that the common ancestor was a fuzzy thing, they've argued that that is indeed uh, certainly plausible and maybe most likely. But um, what does this mean for all the scaly dinosaurs that um, Barrett and Butler and so on had in mind? Does it mean that they come from fuzzy ancestors and they lost the, the fuzzy integument as they evolved large body size? Does it mean that they had fuzzy integument at some parts of their life and that they lost it as they grew larger? And this is further complicated by the fact that there are all these arguments over um, what the the nature of the genetic relationship between feathers and scales. Mm. Because we now know in birds that some of the big scales scales in quotes the term scale doesn't really mean anything it just means big plate of keratin on the skin some people now know that well we know that the 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 big scales on the limbs of birds are actually heavily modified feathers keratinized genetically modified feathers 
does this does that oh, this bear in mind this is like new knowledge this is something that's only become known in the past couple of years we don't yet understand how this might apply to fossil taxa but what does it mean for big scales in non-bird dinosaurs is it conceivable that some of the scaly structures in dinosaurs actually evolved from feathers is it true what some people say about feathers and scales not being able to grow on the same part of the body because they're developmentally incompatible uh, I don't we don't know we and we aren't going to have answers to these questions particularly about the distribution of um filaments and feathers until we have more fossils so what do we need we need stuff like we need good integumentary impressions from early dinosaurs or non dinosaur dinosauromorphs animals like silosaurids and um lagopetids yeah. And also more information from early dinosaurs like, well, from, from early sauropodomorphs, prosauropod style animals. That's obviously crucial here. We, we don't know anything about them. We just assume they're scaly. We know that sauropods are scaly and we've got like a scaly hatchling sauropod. There's a saltosaurine titanosaur with scaly skin. <clears throat> so the... What do you think? Um... Well, I sort of agree with you. I, If I were a betting man, I would bet that we are going to discover these are all the same thing. Um, I'm not very convinced of the notion that we've got more scaly dinosaurs than um, furry or whatever you want to call it. What, what is? We need a general term for it. Yeah, uh, that's why I say fuzzy, because there isn't yeah, one, really. Fuzzy, fuzzy dinosaurs, yeah. Um, and therefore the fuzziness must be independently evolved several times. That doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, you've got, you've got it in um, ceratopsians, um, heterodontosaurids. Are they separate? Are they different things? I mean, how, Compete, how many... Yeah, competing for lodgenies. Yeah. yeah. No, no, sorry. I mean, are they, like, if um, dinosaurs are meant to be primitively scaly, did heterodontosaurids and psittacosaurs evolve this separately or mm. you know are they independent events so you've, you've you've got a bit of a mess then you're you're asking it to re-evolve quite a number of times as i think the simplest explanation at the moment seems to be that larger body size often led to losing the losing the fur or the the fuzz um and that it was lost multiple times. But, I, you know, it could go the other way, and I don't think that's crazy. I don't think it's crazy to say that, well, maybe maybe it evolved once in ornithischians or even twice, once in theropods, once in um, pterosaurs. It's not utterly crazy. It just doesn't seem like the most likely explanation to me. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. My, my gut feeling, my gut feeling is exactly the same as what you've just said, particularly when you think of how superficially similar in overall form non-dinosaur dinosauromorphs are to things like small ornithischians small theropods in a in a way they're roughly similar to early small pterosaurs we're talking about the same kind of animals we're talking about little leggy bipedal mostly bipedal so they may have some of them may have been well substantially quadrupedal like silosaurus for example but we're talking about lo long-limbed gracile skinny things that probably have um there's indications from from histology 
uh, that and and also loads of other stuff to do with like a, some of the stuff that Sarah Werning was talking about SVP to do with like measuring physiology from the space of um, the size of lacunae in, in bones. You know the actual uh, the spaces for uh, blood cells and what uh, blood uh, vessels in, in bones and stuff. Um, there's indication that a lot of these animals have like a high, uh, very, relatively fast uh, physiology, something tending more towards the uh, uh, tachy metabolic, sort of endothermic uh, end of things. Um, it's most tempting to think that, yeah, this, all these like little ornithodiromonarchosaurs have structures, integumentary structures of some sort. And there's just a kind of like, gradation there's like a you know a great uh, what's the, the a kind of continuum a sort of imperceptible gray sort of shades of gray type thing where yeah you evolve towards larger body size it's kind of it's a it's a i cannot find the word i'm trying to enunciate the um the fact that you've got a, a uh uh <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going? Uh, you know, let's let's go you to the know end. What I mean. No, I don't know. Where you, where, what's the end, and then we'll um, work back to that word. The, the fact that well, the fact that there's a sliding scale with little fuzzy things at the left and mm. big scaly things at the right. Yeah. And then as you move towards the right, you become less, less, less fuzzy. Yeah. But given conditions, you might still retain integument, uh, fibrous or feathery integument at large body size. For example. Many people were surprised by Eutyrannus, this tyrannosaur that's, what is it, six or seven meters long and which is yeah. almost certainly covered in uh, filamentous integumentary, integumentary structures and is living in a cool environment. It's not living in a tropical rainforest, not living in, in, a, trop, in a tropical environment. It's a tropical environment. It's living in a temperate, a cool temperate um, place. So, uh, you know, where there are the pressures, then animals at large body size can retain them. But in many places, they aren't doing that. And, I mean, we've, we're learning a lot about dinosaur integument all the time. You know, there was, this, there was the new study about the, um, the new data on Saurolophus skin and Edmontosaurus skin and so on that have been published last year. But um, in general, the if you were to... If you were to get all the dinosaur skin impressions together, well, I don't know how many there are, but it's it's not it's not many, is it? It's we're still talking about a handful of taxa that don't represent all lineages. Yes, we've got we've got a lot of skin impressions from some taxa, and then of course huge big lineages with nothing, right? Yeah. So lots and lots of like little cytosaur type things. There's, I saw dozens and dozens of specimens with really nice skin impressions in China. There's there's heaps of them, but um, yeah, that's from one one or two taxa. I don't know, or maybe maybe fifteen, but they all look the same. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so there's we need more of a spread still, and I think yeah, the critical thing is getting down into the base of the tree there and seeing what's what those what those things are doing. Otherwise, it'll never be properly settled. Yeah, and there was one. There's one key taxon which is due to be published fairly soon, an Ornithischian dinosaur, which um, a lot of people know about it because it was meant to be discussed at the the SVP meeting, but wasn't. So there is new data coming in on this, and that I think that does you know um, support the view that that fibrous inte filamentary integumentary structures are indeed most likely widespread. So also, and I. Uh, 
this probably still isn't published, but I think everybody knows now the the spiny um, triceratops, right? Mm. So there's, but there's other spines on other other um, other taxa, uh, and is that, are they the same basic structure? Uh, are they, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the development of. Um, well, no, I've heard things. different. Yeah, the, th the things I've heard about the, the Triceratops is the it's a specimen where there are raised nipple-like things in the middle of some scales on the tail. And the inference is that those nipples support would have supported longer filaments. Oh, I see. The, the next inference being that those filaments or spines, whatever, that they are homologous with the, with the caudal structures known for... Cetacosaurus. So that's where people are going with this. They're mm. thinking, they're thinking, oh well, because it's a obviously Triceratops is like a hundred times bigger than Cetacosaurus. Is it? Is this a modified version of the the uh, filament like hair-like structure of Cetacosaurus? That's where people are going with this. But at the moment, yeah, it's all it's chatter and uh, uh, yes, and, yeah, no, nothing, nothing in print. I, I don't, I don't know when anything, anything will will appear on print. It does. So I think it seems very slow. A lot of the um, skin impression stuff seems to be very slow in coming out, and I'm not really sure why that is. Lazy, lazy paleontology. <laughs> um, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be that many people interested in it. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's part of it. It's like <laughs> uh, I'll get my I'll get my shovel out. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Um, I think it's the fact that a lot of the people that have access to this stuff honestly aren't interested in life appearance and soft structures. They're more interested in uh, bony things, I guess. I don't know. Just... Yeah. What are they interested in? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> what are you interested in? <laughs> so, so I think we so we've just come to a consensus there. John and I seem to both agree, or we do both agree that that a probably ancestral widespread. Uh, filamentous type integument quite plausibly is primitive for ornithodira at least um but it certainly doesn't leave out the possibility that that independent evolution of these structures has occurred because i can think the thing when when we have these kind of discussions about archosaurs i can think of similar debates that have surrounded the distribution of structures that are seen in pterosaurs and dinosaurs it's when you look at some other groups of animals like lizards or God, fish. It's like you see insanity, absolute crazy things that have evolved apparently multiple times independently, that which you normally, you know, if you were dealing with the fossil record, you think, oh, clearly those things are homologous. But mm. It's like, no, in actual fact, they've evolved seven different times independently within this one small lineage. Um, forget <laughs> everything, you know, flat fishes are not monophyletic for crying out loud. Um, or, you know, when you, yeah, the, the stuff that people have say they've discovered through molecular phylogenies is just it would it it does make you wonder why people even bother to do <laughs> uh, morphology based uh, phylogenetic scenarios. But hey, you know we try we as scientists we are supposed to work with the data that we have, um, <laughs> which is always a, a I know Pale that's, paleontology that's, so hopeless <laughs> <laughs> can't so, yeah, can't I, know anything. Why even try? Exactly. And have you ever heard these these rumors about people finding evidence for filamentous structures in Mesozoic crocodilomorphs? I had heard rumors, but Yeah. Really? Oh, that's all I've 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 heard stuff and I've seen it associated with, you know, 
artistic reconstructions on DeviantArt or whatever, mm. where um, people have said that there's some indication for uh, like quilly type things in some Notosukian type crocodiliforms. And it's like, where does that come from? I've never, that definitely isn't anywhere in the technical descriptions. Is it, is it just people looking at, there was a while, like back in the 80s and 90s, where people tried to work out whether non-mammalian synapsids had whiskers. And they would often point to the presence of foramina mm. on, the, uh, on the, the facial bones as evidence for whiskers. And so there are some reconstructions from the 80s and 90s and from beforehand, I suppose, John McLaughlin's book, um, where you have uh, non-mammalian synapsids with whiskery faces. But it's like, well, hold on, the structures that you're pointing to and saying are linked to whiskers are vascular or nerve foramina, these like little tiny holes that are all over the place in skeletons for <clears throat> blood vessels and nerves. And there's no correlation in living animals with the uh, extent of whiskers or indeed hair with but there's no those aren't bony correlates of mm. these soft tissue structures and so i wonder if with these these claims these unofficial internet only claims about the crocs is it people doing the same thing is it like no disrespect intended but is it fanboys and fangirls looking at looking at bones and saying oh i see little holes that must be evidence for quilly things in uh you know you yeah. name it sebacus uh the you know some some like you know notosuchus some fossil croc is it is it inexperienced mistakes and mistakes that are leading to these conclusions or have they actually heard someone who knows what they're talking about say something that uh... yeah take that and again boys. <laughs> and girls we've just done our three questions haven't we we have yeah uh, so I, we're I also that... pretty much out of time so let's go through the facebook questions and yeah we'll wrap up. so we said we were going to talk about walking with dinosaurs but that we defend i think this is I why think... we don't do introductions Darren. we thought that the cash for questions section would maybe involve five minutes but that's just not how i do stuff and and john god mm. once you get him talking don't shut up so <laughs> uh thank you to the people who've wished Tetsu, happy birthday. Lowelli, Lowelli Fu, is this the same person? Yes, I believe so. So, Lowelli, let, let us know how to actually say your name because on Facebook I'm seeing Lowelli Fu. Thank you for the I'm happy birthday. I'm guessing that's a bit of a pseudonym for Facebook, right? Well, okay. I don't I'm know. Very I, much, I, I very much doubt Fu is actually his last name. Or her last name. <laughs> Marcus Good says, <laughs> Did you. And John say, okay, so that, so that famous sauropod that's in, there's a cast of it, Carnegie one in the Natural History Museum. How do you say its name? What? The Giraffe Titan? No, Natural History Museum in London. It's got oh. a big sauropod in the main thing, main oh, hall. Diplodocus. Diplodocus. So that answers the question. Because Marcus said, did you, do you guys say... Diplodocus or Diplodocus. Diplodocus is just too nasty. Well, this, see, pronunciations, this this is the part, this this actually should have gone into Cow and Keezy Corner, (laughs) because this is one of those things where 
nobody really knows well unless you come up with the name yourself and specifically have determined exactly how it's to be pronounced based on classical sources most people don't know how to say these names and we kind of invent our own things and then we just copy what we've heard other people say bear in mind most of us only read these names you don't hear about them in conversation anyway so i grew up saying or thinking diplodocus and hearing other people say diplodocus and was kind of weirded out when i heard people say diplodocus diplodocus which I have heard since. So I would say Diplodocus because it's what I grew up with. Marcus I believe says, everyone I, should be saying Diplodocus. Diplodocus. No, which Diplodocus. Well. Diplodocus. Yes. Yeah, but you also, I'm, I'm told by people of Latin ancestry that you should say Dinosaur. <laughs> Dinosaur. <laughs> and uh, it should be Tyrannosaurus. Tyrannosaurus. And it's like, yeah, like we're really going to go around talking like that. Tyrannosaurus. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. I, I did hear Ralph Molnar say one a name like that. Actually, I'm not sure if he was joking, but uh, if the, Lewis Ray put me onto this stuff in the first place, I could um, tell that was a Lewis Ray accent. But <laughs> Andrea Cow says, "I think the world is ready for a Paleonathozoic meme." I'm not really sure what he's referring to there, but it, mm. uh, Memo says, "Talk about John's amazing dinosaur chase picture." No, not now. Too mm. much time. Talk about how to understand 2D cell animation is for representing dinosaurs. Uh, Lowelli, this this must be the thing we've just dealt with. Can you talk about scales versus hairs across one of the dirons? Um, likes the idea of uh, seeing brachiosaurs with giant feathery crests. No one would surely ever illustrate anything that stupid. <laughs> of course they have, because I'm referring to a picture John has done. Patrick Murphy, who I sent through his mum a uh, Christmas present too, which I know he enjoyed. So, you know, hope, well, <laughs> hope you enjoyed it. Who would win in a fight? A giant as darkhead or Buffy Summers? Uh, giant as darkhead, of course. Perhaps more seriously, what would you say is the weirdest dinosaur extinct creature film you've ever seen? I'm going to go for uh, Nymphoid Barbarian Cannibal Girls in Dinosaur Hell or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm, what about mm-hmm. you? I, yeah. You're reading questions out too fast. I didn't even get that one. What was that? What was the weirdest... What's the weirdest dinosaur slash extinct creature film you've ever seen? Hmm. I try to avoid a lot of those sorts of films, so I couldn't say. I saw a thing that, that when I say saw, I mean it was on while I was working. As I always, you know, um, I saw a, there was a television, there was a movie on last night about some sharks that got mutated by electricity and could now swim through sand. And they didn't look like normal sharks; they were like yeah. armor sand sharks. I saw that on the internet. I didn't yeah. see the film, but I saw the trailers for it. Oh, it was brilliant. It was great. <laughs> well done. I, spe- I especially like the bit at the end where the giant shark burst out of the, the cliff and ate the guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, spoiler we... for everyone now. Sorry. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> Sorry, Jessica, I knew you were going to watch that movie. Yan Wu, regular commenter, uh, did Arkansas Fibers Evolve once many times. Yeah, we, well, we kind of covered that. Marcus Buller, another regular commenter. Hi, Marcus. Wanted to talk about Leviathan. That's a giant sperm whale. And he wants to talk about sperm whales in general. Yeah, another time. And also about giant post-Cretaceous crocodilians, Rimasuchus, Purosuchus, Purosaurus even. Okay, Marcus, remember, cash for questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which just about uh, wraps things up. Don't think there's anything else you need to say. Um, No, that's it. Let's wrap it up. Um, uh, uh, we need to talk about, once we've done this, we need to talk about how things are going with Cryptozoologicon. I meant to talk about that, I totally forgot. 
Um, because yeah, our, our book Cryptozoologicon available from digital retailers, as is our previous book, All Yesterdays, uh, published through Irregular Books, and we'll provide a link to that. There is a book if you're interested in tetrapod zoology types type stuff. There's a book called Tetrapod Zoology Book One, which I think is still available from um, digital. Uh, well, it's still available on Amazon and stuff. I, I haven't actually <laughs> checked lately, but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's still uh, out there. Uh, I blog at um, a uh, little blog called Tetrapod Zoology, which is currently hosted at Scientific American. I tweet at... at oh, he's quite an intelligent, free human being. At a tet zoo. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Tetrapod Zoology Facebook page. Uh, on to you. Uh, oh, you know what I keep forgetting to mention? Um, I'm just going to have to make sure I get this right. Um, is that there's there's Tetsu Tetsu um t-shirts. Oh yeah. Okay, so if you go to redbubble.com slash people slash tetrapodcats, I'll also put a link on the tetsu.com website. You can buy your own very special um Tetrapod Zoology podcast t-shirt. Now, I if you do this, which would be great, uh the sizes are a little smaller than I was expecting. So maybe go a size up from what you normally would, I would say. Um, yes, I got da I got Darren a medium and it was too small. Mm. And you are a medium, I think. You know, if I was getting a medium T-shirt here, that'd fit. Yeah, I'm yeah. not. I'm not really fat or anything. No. Um, uh, not really fat. Not really fat. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, and it's definitely worth the uh, investment. And if and if uh, and if we do get enough, you know, interest in that T-shirt, you know, we're just going to do more merchandise in the future, right? That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe people could give us an idea of what sorts of things they want. Hmm. Um, I'm at johnconway.co, and I tweet at Mike Terrace. <laughs> it's actually pronounced Nick Terrace. Yes, but it's not spelt with an I. <laughs> um, what else do I do? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Tumblr. And there's always things we forget to mention. Yeah, uh, thank you to the people who have donated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Especially all the thank people that did cash for questions. Yeah, that's yeah. a sore away success. Yes. Let's hope we didn't screw it up so badly that no one ever does it again. Oh, yeah, you're not allowed to ask your money back. <laughs> <laughs> All answers are final. No refunds. <laughs> right. I think that's it. Yay. No, no, they, there's all the email. Uh, we do. We, um, I've got a new email address address because when I set up the email address I didn't know what our thing was going to be so it was tetsu the podcast at gmail.com that one still works but there's a better one now and that's tetrapodcasts at gmail.com yeah yeah bring it yeah okay that's it <laughs>